Morena. Nice to see you all again. Righty-ho. So today is um, the final day in our series of um, the book of Nehemiah, and it's been such a great story so far, hasn't it? So just to catch you up on where we've got to so far, or where we got to last week, um, last week uh, we heard that while the rebuilding of the wall was still going well, um, some enemies came in and tried to discourage and threaten the project and the people, um, and there was also some trouble amongst the people, and Craig talked to us about Nehemiah's response uh, to that trouble and opposition. But what happened after that was actually the wall rebuilding carried on, and the builders would um, have a sword by their side, and those carrying materials would carry materials in one hand and a weapon in the other, and um, the enemies eventually gave up, and the wall was finished uh, in chapter 7, which is awesome. They had completed uh, the project of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And you know what? That's often where we just finish the story of Nehemiah. Um, the wall was rebuilt, the project was completed, but actually, we're only halfway through the book. Did you realize that? So, since today is the last day in our series, sorry, but technically we're going to cover like the last six chapters. <laughs> um, but you'll be pleased to know that we're mainly going to focus in chapter 9, but also have a look at, at chapter 8 as well. And if you've had your Bibles out or want to grab them out again, um, you can look up Nehemiah 8. Uh, we're going to let the Bible do a lot of the talking this morning. So while you're grabbing hold of that again, um, take a look at this meme. Some of you, if you're on social media, may have seen this before. Um, it sort of shows on the left-hand side our expectations of how we hope things will go when we plan them out. Um, versus the reality of how life actually often happens. I wonder if any of you can relate to that, from maybe even from this week, maybe from this morning. <laughs> um, well, the reality for me, uh, the past couple of weeks has really looked more like the right-hand side, I'd have to say. Even this time last weekend, I was actually thinking it wasn't looking like I was going to be able to be here today. And I even recorded this message just in case. Um, but things changed again, and here I am, which is, which is nice. But the cool thing is that nothing is wasted by God, and um, even that has made these chapters even more rich for me. So this meme here is kind of the theme of some of what I'm going to talk about and what we're going to learn about today. So let's, um, before we get to chapter 9, let's have a wee look at chapter 8. And um, let's... Um, start at verse 1 and just re remember that the walls around Jerusalem are just finished at this point and this is where chapter 8 starts. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So a few things to note here. Why is Ezra being mentioned? Well, you may remember early on in our series that Craig told us that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. They kind of tell one overall story. And Ezra was the guy that first led some of the exiles back to Jerusalem. And he got started on the rebuilding of the city and he had um, had the people rebuild the temple before Nehemiah came along. And he's a, a priest and a Bible teacher guy. And then you'll see the book of the law of Moses is mentioned there. So just to note that that refers to what we have as the first five books of the Bible today. So from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. So that's um, 
what he's got out to read. So on verse 2 it says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Ezra is reading the law, but part of the law, a big chunk of it, is actually retelling the history of the people of Israel. So that's what they're listening to. Jump down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Wow. So this passage, this bunch of verses, really caught my eye for a few reasons as I read through Nehemiah. Firstly, the people were listening to the story of God in their lives from daybreak till noon. Now, daybreak for us at the moment is just before seven, so from then till noon, that's like five hours straight of listening to the Bible being read. Now, you and I would probably be fidgeting or grumbling or falling asleep. I mean, maybe some of you are already fidgeting through our longer reading this morning. But here it says, all the people listened attentively. They were listening for five hours. And then did you notice what an amazing response the people had to hearing God's word read? They stood, they lifted their hands, they responded, amen, amen. And then they bowed down and they worshipped. And that, you know, as the word of God was explained to them, their response then was to just weep as they heard it and as they understood it. Amazing response. And then... I think um, this verse 10 stood out to me because of that little phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, what, a, what a great verse, and I've heard it lots before quoted. I've seen it on, you know, have you seen it on mugs in the Christian bookshop or on, on bookmarks and things? But I had no idea that it was a little verse tucked away in the story of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Why does Nehemiah say this to the people? It's because they, when they listened to God's word, they were weeping. Um, perhaps it was because they had realized that they had lived without remembering the story of God in their lives for so long. Maybe they realized that they had moved so far from God's best for them. But Nehemiah said, no, no, it's not 
a time to weep. This should be a celebration. He tells them not to grieve. Because, you know, years before, the prophets had said that um, one day the exiles would return to Jerusalem. So they were standing there as people, as evidence that God had kept his promises to them. God had provided for them to return and to rebuild, and now their city was protected again with the wall that they'd built. And even though there had been opposition, God had been sufficient and had protected them and met their needs and given them success. So Nehemiah tells them that their response should be to have a party, get some delicious food and some sweet drinks and share that together and send some to those that don't have any. This is a day to be set apart for God. It's not for grieving, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So for them, knowing who God is and what he'd done for them was the cause for celebration. So the truth that I learned from chapter 8 is there is joy and strength in knowing God through the Bible. There is joy and strength in knowing God through the Bible. I wonder when was the last time you celebrated after you read your Bible? Does it make you want to laugh? Does it make you want to throw a party? It's not our usual response, is it? But does it make you want to raise your hands or to bow in worship? Does it give you strength as you read um, and know who God is and what he's done for you? That should be our response. You know, reading the Bible should help us to remember that God keeps his promises to his people. He did for the Israelites and he will for all the promises that he's made to us as well. It should remind us that God provides and protects, that he's sufficient when times are tough and there's opposition. So I wonder this morning if you can say that the joy of the Lord is your strength. How is it that you find joy in God? And when was the last time that you did that? Um, I know we all connect with and experience God in different ways, but actually still our primary way of knowing God and who he is and his nature and what he's done and learning from him is still from the Bible. So how much time have you spent recently learning from him? There is joy and strength in knowing God through the Bible. So let's jump into um, chapter 9 now. And um, thank you, Sarah, for that amazing reading. And Sarah read um, a big chunk of chapter 9. And um, if you happen to be watching online or listening to the podcast right now, you might want to pause, if you can, and read chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verses 5 to 31. Um, so what it tells us at the beginning of the chapter is that after the Israelites had gathered in chapter 8, um, a couple of weeks later they gathered again and they spent some more time hearing God's word and in confession and in worship. So in Nehemiah 9, starting at verse 3, it says, They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs, the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And from there, the Levites told the story of the history of the people of Israel, as Sarah read to us. And it covers from creation, then through to Abraham in Genesis 12, um, right through to the exile in the time of that day. 
So what was read to us was the story that covers in broad overview all the books of the law from Genesis to Deuteronomy, plus the story of Joshua and some broad sweeping statements about the era of the kings and the prophets before the exile. So that's about 25 verses that covers almost 75% of the Old Testament. So that was pretty cool. And um, the story of the people looks a bit like this. The, you know, the first part, as I said, it shows how we all hope and expect um, life and the plans that we make will go if we, um, that we'll make steady progress if we make plans and, and put work into them. But life hardly ever goes like that. There are always difficulties and distractions, things that are kind of out of our control or that pop up that we don't expect, or sometimes we make mistakes or we lose interested or, sorry, lose interest or get disappointed or we just decide to go a different way. Well, the Israelites' story was no different, and this diagram pretty much sums up the nation's experiences described in chapter 9, the right-hand side, that is, with all the, the loops and the ups and downs. And I don't know about you, but when I, he I listen to that story of their history, I tend to think about it from the people's perspective and what was happening to them over their history. So let's just um, remind ourselves what was covered in those chapters, sorry, in those verses. In verses 5 to 8, we were told about how Abraham was chosen, that he was um, told to leave his homeland and he was given promises about a people and a nation that would come from him. So things started out really well for the Israelites. Verses 9 to 12 kind of skip 500 years, and we find the people uh, in distress, crying out in slavery in Egypt. Um, so things aren't going well, but then they're rescued from there by Moses, and they have the passage through the parting of the Red Sea. Verses 13 to 18 covered the time when Moses was given the law, and the people were fed manna in the desert and water from a rock. God was really providing for them, yet they refused to listen and they failed to remember God's miracles, and instead they cast a golden calf to worship, and they said they'd rather be slaves in Egypt than out in the desert. So another downer in their history. Then verses 19 to 21 talk about the years um, the Israelites wandered in the desert. They wandered for 40 years for a journey that could have taken them as little as 11 days. That's about 12 and a half thousand extra days of traveling. You know, I was reading just last week about someone who was um, complaining in an article about their um, flight from New York to Auckland. It was supposed to be non-stop, but it had been rescheduled, and they had a stopover in Hawaii, and she was complaining, and I thought, man, she probably just needed to chill out a bit. That's only one extra day, not 12,000. Um, verses 22 to 25 then talked about... Um, Joshua leading the people into the promised land. They're finally there, they conquer it, they have food and abundance, they're on track again as God's people, which is awesome. But then verses 26 to 31 describes a cycle that the people went through for about 800 years. They would follow God for a while and then they would turn away from him. Um, they'd get into trouble, they'd cry out to God for help and he would rescue them and then they'd follow him for a while, but then they'd turn back to the ways of the people around them. Um, God would try and warn them through his prophets, and they would just kill him. 
kill the prophets, sorry, and then um, they'd get into strife, cry out to God again and get rescued and round and round it went for like generations and generations until one day God said enough and he let the Israelites be captured by the nations around them. They were taken out of the promised land and sent into exile and Jerusalem was destroyed. So what the people have just been reminded of by the priests is all the history that led up to where they were that day because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah obviously talk about the exiles coming back to Jerusalem, the return, the rebuilding of what had been broken by all that history. And so it's a spiritual rebuild as well because it represents the people coming back not only to the land that God gave them but it's also um, a reminder of their need to follow God in his ways and to acknowledge him and the ways that they had messed up in the past that led them to be exiled. So when we focus on the story of the people, it's a real mess. It's a sorry mess of spirals instead of a steady relationship with God and following his plans. But what if we flip that story? What if I take out all the bits about the people and only read what it says about God in those verses? What if I just focus on who God is and what it says he has done and his character and nature? It gives me a whole different picture. So I've literally done that. I've stripped back those verses and just captured what it says about God. See how many of these words you hear because this is how it reads. It says, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, all the starry hosts, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering. You heard the cry. You sent signs and wonders. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You came down. You spoke from heaven. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You sustained them. In your great goodness, from heaven you heard them, and in your compassion you rescued them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back. In your great mercy, you did not put an end to them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Wow. Did you realize that passage told us so much about God and who he is and how he acts on his people's behalf? The people's story was just a mess, but the story of God alongside them was steady and sure. You know, the priests sum up the whole story in verse 33 by saying, in all that has happened to us, the people, you, God, have remained righteous you have, remained, uh, you have acted faithfully. 
So when I look beyond the messiness of God's people in the story and look to who God is instead, the truth I find in chapter 9 is this. When I see God's faithfulness in the past, I can trust him with my future, even when things don't look like um, what I expect them to. When I see God's faithfulness in the past, I can trust him with my future. You know, the line of God's faithfulness always looks straight and steady, even when my life looks like a mess of ups and downs. You know, about four months ago, a lovely friend um, asked me to think about if I could imagine that God had one word for me right now, what would it be? One word from God. And I thought about it for weeks. Um, and I was really at a bit of a loss. And actually, I just couldn't come up with one word because, you know, you always need more than one, actually. Um, but in the end, I came up with three. And at the time, I felt like if God had one thing to say to me at that time, it would be this. It would be, where are you? And it's the first question that God asks in the Bible. And he asks it of Adam and Eve when they're hiding from God after disobeying his one command. Now, in my imagining with God asking me, where are you? It wasn't quite like that. I didn't feel like I'd been hiding from God. Um, I just felt like I hadn't been as actively seeking him out. In the last year, I've been busy with some new things. I've been tired with some new things. There's been lots of changes going on. And I'd also stopped some activities um, that had been part of my life for a long time that really kept me anchored in God's word. So the where are you um, question from God that I imagined him asking me um, was perhaps because I felt far away from him and I hadn't been connecting with him um, hadn't been seeking him out, hadn't been learning from him as much. But in the last while, as I read um, and studied Nehemiah 9 in preparation for today, it really struck me that while I might imagine God saying, where are you, to me, all along, he had never gone anywhere. He was never far away. And um, in this story, at times, the people of Israel may have wondered where God was in their story, when they were wandering in the desert, when they were crying out in slavery in Egypt, when they were being attacked by enemies in the promised land, and when they were captured and taken into exile. But this chapter shows us that God was there with them. God was faithful to his promises, loving and merciful. He was directing their paths all along. He was doing signs and wonders for them. He was forgiving them over and over. And um, he, he was gracious and forgiving and compassionate throughout this story. God was always with his people. He was always for his people. He was always working out his plans to bring them back. When they may have wondered, where are you, God? God's position was always, I am with you. And it's a phrase that's repeated throughout Israel's history. It's a great little um, word study to do if you're into that. And because God's character doesn't change, this chapter tells me that even when I imagine that God might be saying to me, where are you, Tina? No matter where I am and what I'm doing, he is always with me. 
He's always for me. He's always working out his plans. And his heart is always for me to come back to him. He is always where he has always been. By my side, his spirit in me, and standing at the door of my heart, gently knocking, waiting for me to let him in. As you look back over the last year or two, um, or maybe even just the last few weeks, you know, maybe there's some, some great things to think back on. But you know, probably for many of you, there's um, some hard times that are, are more difficult to think about as well. As you look back, maybe you can see times where you've felt really close to God and connected to him, and, and that's awesome. Um, but there may also be times when you've felt far from God, maybe because you've chosen to take a path away from him, maybe because you've prayed and things haven't worked out as you'd hoped, um, maybe because something huge has happened and you just don't understand why. But I wonder also, as you look back on the reality of your life, the ups and downs, the backward steps and the struggles, um, will you also look beyond the hardships to see God at work and what he's been doing? Can you see times when he's been patient with you, even when you've ignored him? Do you recall times when you've cried out for help and he's answered? Times when you've felt far away, but God has not moved? Times when God has shown you grace and compassion, forgiveness and love? Would you take that time to look back and know that God was never far? God was always for you and always with you. You know, if you've ever maybe felt like you've let God down, he was always forgiving and gracious. When you were hurting, he was always compassionate. He was always listening. He saw your suffering. He heard your cries. He is abounding in love towards you. Hey, I just want to read you a quote now, and it's um, from some notes from a Bible study fellowship, and it goes like this. People who have gone before us faced uncertain times, just as we often do in today's world. When you look back over your own life, can you trace how God's hand has led you through painful circumstances and even your own mistakes? In the same way, studying Old Testament history offers encouraging and stabilizing lessons for us. God is in control when life seems out of control. God's purposes prevail despite human failure. Recounting God's sovereignty over past history brings security and peace to your life now and in the unseen future. What is your biggest challenge today? What is your greatest concern about tomorrow? Will you trust that God, who created the world, can handle your life? And this really echoes the second truth that we've already had, that when I see God's faithfulness in the past, I can trust him with my future. You know, as the people of Israel heard that story, they responded again, but in a different way to chapter 8. After hearing um, the story from Abraham to exile and now with them finally being back in Jerusalem, Verse 38 finishes with, in view of all this, we the people are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing and affixing seals to it. So we see in Nehemiah 10, um, in response to being reminded of their story, of who God is and all he's done for them, the people commit themselves to God. They agree 
again, to live God's way and to be in active uh, relationship with him. They declare it, they put it in writing, and they seal it. So chapter 10 is all outlining the promises that they make to God to follow him and um, to carefully live as God's instructed them to. And they're really specific about what they're going to do and the responsibilities they'll carry out and how, the ways that they'll support God's people. So I wonder, what is your response in light of God's faithfulness to you? So in the last few months for me, um, I made plans and I've got back into a regular Bible study with other people to keep me accountable. But honestly, the last couple of months, um, despite my plans, um, life has been very messy, very complicated, and at moments quite tough. Um, there have been curveballs, and there's been a lot going on in my extended family. And at times it's felt like an army of problems has been against us. But through being back in Bible study, there's been some blessing too. In the midst of this army of troubles, um, God has reminded me that he is in it all. And last week uh, in my Bible study, it just happened to include a story about King Jehoshaphat. Um, and it was in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And I felt like God specially showed me uh, these three verses. And in chapter 20, verse 12, King Jehoshaphat is facing a war. And he said, our God, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that was pretty much how I'd been feeling. All these things were happening in my family. We didn't really know what was best to do. And we were just kind of making it up as we went along but our eyes have also been on God. And then a wee bit uh, further down, the answer comes back to King Jehoshaphat. And I felt like the, the, the answer to him was also um, for me. It says, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And in verse 17, it says again, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. How cool is that? So just as the worship team comes up, um, I want you to know it gave me strength and hope to know that God had used his word to speak directly to how I'd been feeling and to give me the answer that peace could be found in knowing that God was and is with me. So that was, has been really precious to me in the last week. My reality is that um, I really don't know about what to do with a lot of the stuff that's been going on. Um, in my extended family, and there has been some fear and some discouragement. But with my eyes on God, on God, I'm reminded that the battle is His, and He's with with us in it all. You know, in view of all that, um, like the Israelites, my response is that I want to make a binding agreement in my heart to follow God. How about you? What's your response to His faithfulness? So we're only up to chapter 10. There are still actually three chapters to go. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but to finish up, do you want to know why we never really study the last few chapters in the, in the book of Nehemiah? It's because it ends on a real downer. Um, chapter 11 and 12 is like another counting of the people. They do another census of who's living in Jerusalem. They seem to love to 
to count the people. Um, but then chapter 13, it finishes with a couple of situations that come up that Nehemiah hears about, and the people are messing up again uh, so soon after having made promises to God about living his way. So Nehemiah has to step in, and he sorts them out and tells them what they need to do to get back on track again. And it's like yet another one step forward and two steps back for the people of Israel. But I'm, I'm actually kind of glad it's there, though, because it's a reminder that life's still going to contain struggle, even when we have God with us, that despite my best intentions, I'm still going to mess up, that I won't always get things right. But the thing that I can rely on is that God's nature and character doesn't change. And that even when I don't keep mine, God always keeps his promises. God is steady, and all the things he said in his word about himself are still true. And that holds me safe. Uh, because my story, my reality, may look like that's those squiggly lines of mess on the graph. But God's story behind that, God's perspective and God's big picture is what really counts. Um, so... The true truths that we can hold on to this week, however your um, plans work out, are there's joy and strength in knowing God through the Bible. And when I see God's faithfulness in the past, I can trust him with my future. So I just want to say, if your life feels like it's been doing a few loops recently, then please reach out to someone after the service um, to pray with you. And my prayer would be that you would know that God is with you and that you would have the strength to keep your eyes on him. So right now, we're just going to continue with some more worship. Don't just sing the words. Think about what they're saying about God and respond to him. Respond to him with your heart. Respond to him with your hands. Respond to him with your knees or on your knees if you want to, however God leads you this morning. Thanks, guys. <laughs>